everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Hope your weekend is going well. A lot to discuss. I want to start with uh, John Bolton and his admission this week to have participated in plotting foreign coups. He was speaking to Jake Tapper of CNN. I don't know that I agree with you, to be, to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, you know, not here, but you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. I, I do want to ask a follow-up. Um, when we were talking about what is capable or what you need to do to be able to plan a coup, and you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but uh, successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took. John Bolden speaking to Jake Tapper of CNN. And I love that clip for so many reasons, because to me it captures pretty much the entire spectrum of how dysfunctional our political system and media are. First of all, the fact that John Bolton's being interviewed at all as a serious person rather than a professional sadist who's caused suffering around the world is an amazing sight in itself and says a lot about the nature of our political media system. But then also, Bolton is making those comments. He's admitting, he's blurting out his role in planning coups while he's being interviewed about January 6th. And January 6th remains 18 months later, or whatever it is now, this huge media fixation, nonstop coverage on CNN and MSNBC in the major newspapers, even though all the details are pretty much already known. What Trump did was crazy, and he was impeached for it. But still, you have these hearings that are ongoing and sort of rehashing the story. And while a few new things have, have come out, there still is not any evidence of this sprawling conspiracy involving Trump and people who were involved in the riots to basically stage a riot. Certainly Trump incited it. He encouraged it. That's all well known. But in terms of this being a pre-planned riot involving Trump, that has not come out yet. And I don't think it will. I just don't think, I don't think they have the evidence for that. But what they do have is a motivation to talk about January 6th because doing so keeps the focus on Trump, which the media loves. He's profitable for them. It also keeps the focus off of real actual issues that are facing this country, which are so many right now as we face record inflation and so many other calamities. And the other utility of January 6th is that it helps perpetuate this myth that the U.S. cares about democracy both at home and abroad. And treating this three-hour riot as some sort of major affront to democracy is very convenient for people who across the spectrum spend their time subverting governments abroad. And John Bolton just admitted to that on live TV. And that's what makes his comments so inconvenient because not only is he downplaying the notion, the obsession of people like Jake Tapper that what Trump did was a sprawling, extensive coup. He's also acknowledging that he, people like him, carry out real coups abroad. And people like Jake Tapper and other people on CNN and MSNBC either support those coups or they just don't acknowledge them. So John Bolton right there exposes a lot. And you can see in Jake Tapper's response, he's not indignant when John Bolton admits to plotting coups. He actually tries to joke around with him and play around and he says... Um, I, uh, you know, I feel like there's stuff you're not telling me, and it's kind of a friendly exchange instead of actually pressing him on 
well, what are you talking about? Where did you launch a coup and what did you do? And if you were to press that question, I mean, John Bolton certainly would have deflected, but the answers are known. And that John Bolton organized, for example, or helped organize the coup in Venezuela in 2019, which is still ongoing. The attempt is ongoing. The U.S. has imposed murderous sanctions that kill civilians and destroy Venezuela's economy. And that's a real coup. And that's a real attack on democracy. And that's the real subversion of democracy that people like Jake Tapper don't want to discuss. And this week on my podcast, Pushback for the Gray Zone, I interviewed Fulton Armstrong, who is a former senior U.S. intelligence official. And he was himself caught up in John Bolton's foreign coup plots in the sense that back in 2002, John Bolton really wanted the U.S. intelligence community to come out and say that Cuba had an advanced germ warfare program, similar to what John Bolton and the Bush administration were doing with Iraq WMDs or you know fake Iraq WMDs. So John Bolton wanted the U.S. intelligence community to sign off on his belief that Cuba had this advanced chemical weapons or germ warfare program. And he wanted to use that to advance his goals of regime change in Cuba to justify more sanctions or justify perhaps increased clandestine operations. And Fulton Armstrong at the time, who was the senior national intelligence officer for Latin America, refused to go along with it. So John Bolton, as Fulton Armstrong recounts in our interview, tried tried to have this guy Fulton Armstrong fired. He marched into the CIA and he demanded his firing and uh, he was unsuccessful. But that speaks to how determined Bolton is in carrying out his plots, that people who get in the way, including inside the U.S. government, they have to be taken out. And it's a story that tracks with the story I've covered before of Jose Bustani, who back when he was the head of the OPCW, he was forced out by John Bolton when he was standing in the way of the Iraq war. And Bolton came to him and said, we know where your kids live. So that's how John Bolton, how committed John Bolton was to his coup plots abroad, his threatening people and their children, whether you're the head of the OPCW in the case of Jose Bustani or in the case of Fulton Armstrong, a senior U.S. intelligence official uh, threatening him, uh, threatening his job, trying to have his job removed. And uh, that speaks to the attitude of our rulers. They are so determined and so identified with cementing U.S. hegemony that anybody is expendable. Top officials in their own government are expendable. And certainly, above all, the civilians of the governments being targeted are expendable. And that takes us to Ukraine, where I have a new piece out called, In Ukraine, A Proxy War on the Planet. And um, the point of that story is just to say that, yes, above all, the U.S. has sacrificed Ukraine for its hegemonic goals. That's been very clear since 2014, when the U.S. backed a coup. I've talked about this before, that shortly before the coup, Carl Gershman, who's the head of the, who was the head of the National Endowment for Democracy, he wrote a very influential article and prophetic article in the Washington Post declaring that Ukraine was the biggest prize. And what he meant by that was that if the U.S. could achieve regime change in Ukraine, then that could redound to Russia as well. And he explained that if Putin loses in Ukraine, that he could also lose on his home turf as well, meaning he could be overthrown. And that's what the U.S. did. And that's what set off uh, the eight-year Donbass War in which the U.S. has used Ukrainians as cannon fodder to weaken Russia, to bleed it, uh, and to install a U.S.-friendly regime that can be deeply incorporated into NATO, which is exactly what the U.S. has done. And that's why it recently came out that uh, U.S. trainers 
um, trained at least 27,000 Ukrainian forces at just one base, just one base in Ukraine. 27,000 Ukrainian forces were trained there over the last eight years. And that's among many other steps that were taken to incorporate Ukraine into NATO. So it's been clear that Ukraine's been used as cannon fodder. And now Ukraine's economy is collapsing. Just today, Stephen Hankey is a former Reagan official. He says, Ukraine's economy is in a state of total collapse. I measure Ukraine's inflation rate at at 49% per year. The West continues to demand that Ukraine remain in an economic death spiral. Unfortunately, war-ending, life-saving diplomacy is nowhere in sight. That's Steve Hankey. He's now a a professor at uh, or or an economist at Johns Hopkins and uh, a former uh, Reagan White House official. That's his assessment. And that same attitude towards Ukraine of basically sacrificing Ukraine to bleed Russia, to weaken Russia in the words of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, it extends now, as I write in my article, to the rest of the planet, where the crisis in Ukraine has led to you know, inflation. German industries are warning of entire collapse, uh, higher energy prices throughout Europe, the prospect of energy rationing going into next winter, all these very dire things. And it's probably most profound in Africa, where the cost of food has increased. And that's because a lot of Africa relies on Ukrainian and Russian wheat. And certainly Russia, because it invaded Ukraine, it has responsibility. And it's also been accused of blocking Ukraine's ports. Although on that allegation, I I mean, I haven't investigated it in too much detail, but I do think there is some nuance to it. For example, Ukraine itself has mined its own ports, and they refused, they refused so far to demine those ports, saying that if they did, that would invite further Russian incursions, which is fair, I suppose, if you're being invaded. But it does also mean that with these mines, you know, even if Russia wasn't imposing a blockade, then they couldn't leave those ports, as I understand it. So it looks like there has been a deal, though, reached to break the impasse. Turkey has brokered it, and that's a very positive thing. And hopefully it means that more... Ukrainian grain will be exported to feed people. But this isn't just the fault of Russia. Uh, This also is a policy choice of the U.S., which has imposed sanctions on Russia, which make it very difficult for countries to buy Russian goods and to transport Russian goods, no matter what is actually written into the sanctions. This always happens that even if the U.S. says there are humanitarian exemptions in practice, that is never actually the case because people just don't want to risk uh, doing transactions that could put them on the U.S. sanctions list. That's that's pretty much what happens everywhere. Cuba, Syria, you name it. Even if the U.S. says there are exemptions for humanitarian goods, in practice, that's kind of meaningless. And so these sanctions, as the African Union has warned, uh, are making it very difficult for Africa to import food. Uh, the head of the African Union, Macky Sall, has said this, quote, anti-Russia sanctions have made this situation worse And now we do not have access to grain from Russia, primarily to wheat. And most importantly, we also do not have access to fertilizer. The situation was bad and now it has become worse, creating a threat to food security in Africa. Because yes, on top of grain exports, these sanctions have also limited the export of fertilizer from Russia and Belarus. So that's an issue. But what is the U.S. doing? Well, U.S. officials have said openly, as the Washington Post reported recently, that they're willing to, quote, countenance mounting hunger. 
if that means helping to deny Russia a victory in Ukraine. That's the attitude of the Biden administration. And it leads to, for Africa, a, a dilemma like this. And this is from a New York Times article talking about how Africa faces a, quote, dilemma. And this is what the Times says that dilemma is. Africa, quote, potentially faces a hard choice between, on the one hand, benefiting from possible war crimes and displeasing a powerful Western ally, and on the other, refusing cheap food at a time when wheat prices are soaring and hundreds of thousands of people are starving. So that, according to the Times, is a dilemma, where on the one hand, you have hundreds of thousands of people starving. On the other hand, though, if you import food to feed them, you will, quote, risk displeasing a powerful Western ally, unquote, which reminds me of like a mafia don. You know, a mafia don might say to someone under their control, you know, don't do business with uh, this other supplier uh, or else I'm going to be angry. And even if that means your business goes under and your people starves, too bad. You don't want to displease me. It sounds like how a mafia boss would would operate the world. But unfortunately, this is how the U.S. runs the world, where African countries have to choose between displeasing their powerful Western ally and feeding hundreds of thousands of starving people. And you can go on down the list, as I do in this article, about all the ways in which the proxy war is basically um, immiserating people across the world. Germany is facing the worst of it in Europe, the threat of entire industries collapsing. Um, Europe is now dealing with a flood of weapons into Ukraine that nobody can track. One Western official told the Financial Times, quote, once uh, or told the Financial Times that once NATO weapons cross over into Ukraine from Poland, quote, from the moment from that moment, we go blank on their location and we have no idea where they go, where they are used or even if they stay in the country. So. In case after case, you have this proxy war endangering people, whether it's taking away food or now subjecting Europe to a flood of new weapons that are not traceable. And there's no sign at all that there's any enthusiasm in Washington for this to to end. And partly I blame the progressives in Congress who supported this measure, this proxy war from the start, zero opposition and no voices of dissent, except at the margins, except really at this point on the right of the Republican Party. So it makes sense that after years of using Ukraine as cannon fodder and as sacrificial lambs, basically, for hegemonic goals against Russia, it makes sense that the U.S. would use the rest of the planet for those same goals as well. All right, that is my rant. Let's take calls. Okay, H. Ali, you're up first. Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, so... uh... My question or whatever is about the January 6th um, stuff. (laughs) At this point, I I was following it as it was happening uh, almost two years ago. But And I I could – well, let me start with a kind of rhetorical question about what happened. Um, I mean, if – what would you think would happen if something like some kind of left oriented group would have like uh, Black Lives Matter or Antifa or whatever would have you know gotten into uh, an important building like that <laughs> do you understand my question so what would have happened if Black Lives Matter I missed the last part or or Antifa or something some kind yeah. of that kind of movement would have people of that movement would have 
would have done the same thing as the the Trumpers did. I mean, what do you, what do you think would have happened? <laughs> oh well, certainly, I think they would have met been met with much more force than the Trump movement would. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think that's a totally legit critique of, you know, what happened on January sixth that relatively this mob was treated pretty nicely and they were allowed to i mean if black lives matter was there they i don't think that they they ever would have been in position to flood the capital like that if, yeah if that's the thing it's, it's, it's like unthinkable to think that it, it, it would even happen but yeah yeah so, but then yeah but but then you have to think about so what's going on there so part of that is just racism where a majority white crowd the security state just doesn't see that as a threat you know, they see that maybe as their allies, mm. right? That's, I think, to me, the most plausible explanation. Or <laughs> there are some people who actually wanted that to happen because they wanted to use it to further, you know, uh, basically stigmatize Trump and yeah. also to justify a power grab, a, a national security state power grab. It's, um, mm. that's a possibility. I, you know, I don't, I don't know, like, I have no evidence that it was well thought out like that. I do, I, I tend to think that, this is just because of basically racism, bias, that they, they just didn't fathom that a white crowd would be violent and they don't see them that way, whereas they look yeah. differently as people of color. But, you know, given all that's happened, certainly January 6th has been exploited to, you know, uh, increase the power of the national security state, as these events always are. Yeah, but the thing is, considering what that it's unthinkable that it would happen from the left or if if it would have happened, it would be like met with some kind of draconian measures that would be like basically the end of left, openly left opinions in, in America or whatever. So when I listen to like Jimmy Dore and Glenn Greenwald and maybe, I mean, you can, maybe you can, maybe you don't feel the same, but, but when I listen to um, partly maybe 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 <laughs> your calling or uh, useful ideas or whatever, it's like it's discussed as if that wasn't really a big deal, and the Democrats are having a meltdown and making a big deal out of it. And I'm not out to defend the Democrats; I think they're they're disgusting. But I think considering, I think I think. I feel it's we on the left or center, liberal left, whatever, we shouldn't. And I know that this is not a popular opinion. I think people are going to have a meltdown in the chat. <laughs> I think I'm such a loser for saying this, but uh, I don't think. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be such a big deal that these clowns got in. I mean, in a perfect world, because it's it's not like that. That's a royal palace from the 16th century or anything. But the way the Western world works or anywhere. If you, if you step into a building like that, I mean, it's, yeah, you, you it's just, it's just, you, you don't do that. So I, considering that, I, I don't think we should treat it as, Oh, it wasn't a big deal. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think we should, um, I mean, it's obviously it's fair to, to, to discuss that they're using this to do, this and that, but the the internet itself, I think it should be met with, um, yeah, like we shouldn't. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm calling for Sweden. English is not my first language. But we shouldn't like diminish the. the I got the it. You, you of it. yeah. I got it. It was a serious event, and you don't want to see it diminished. I guess 
Where I would disagree is I think it's not worthy of so much attention so long afterwards. I think it definitely was a riot. I think Trump should have been a pinch at, at the time. I think mm. now I think now it serves a to focus on it now at this point serves a purpose similar to Russiagate to me, which is basically yeah. for Democrats to avoid governing, being a real party, or in the case of Russiagate, they're, they're in the opposition, but being a real party and putting out real policies that impact people's lives and distract from the assaults on democracy taking place by the U.S. around the world and the and all the catastrophes that are happening, including the Ukraine proxy yeah. war. I just don't think it's worthy of the attention that it's getting. But I hear you that it's also not, you know, I don't, it definitely was a serious event and it does speak to serious problems that I've spoken about before, including white supremacy. And what Trump did was crazy. But uh, I guess for me, where I think we differ is, I think it's a matter of focus and emphasis. Yeah, I mean, I agree. The, I, I thank even, you for the call. I even, I'm, yeah, I'm, okay. I'm going to move on because we have a lot of calls. So thank you. For yeah, the call. thanks. Right. Okay. All right, Rodrigo. Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, hi, um, I just had a question about your article. I'm pardon my ignorance on this. Um, you talk about the future of Neistar. Uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, so far, like the the chances of renegotiation look slim up up until um, the treaty's expiration date of early 2026. Um, but I wanted to ask is what would that look like from now until then if the war's still happening by that time? And like in terms of nuclear weapons, and then the other question of your time, I wanted to ask about your uh, the Collision Tech Conference uh, off camera. So um, it seems like you guys had a got a chance to talk to corporate journalists. I, I was curious if anybody of any corporate journalists confronted you guys after like regarding everything you said on stage. Okay, so there's two questions here. The first question is about New Start. And that is the treaty that imposes the last remaining limitations on the nuclear weapon stockpiles of both the U.S. and Russia. And it almost expired because Trump and his brilliant cohort tried to kill it, essentially. They refused to support an uh, unconditional extension. They wanted to add new conditions to its renewal, including bringing in China, which China balked at and so did Russia. So Trump was about to let New Start expire, and uh, Biden, when he came into office, that was the first thing he did was renew it, which I thought was a good thing. And actually, that was a case of, for all the fear-mongering and hype around Russian interference in the election, Russia actually interfered on Biden's behalf, which is ironic now, given what Biden is presiding over. But but uh, Russia could have given Trump a really big win and just caved to his demands before the election and sign his version of New Start extension, but they didn't. And they said that we, you know, we know that Biden actually supports our position. So that to me was actually them putting their, their bets on Joe Biden because I think they thought he'd be more stable and predictable than Trump. But anyway, so and now, though, since the invasion in February, there have been no talks at all between the U.S. and Russia on anything, uh, including renewing New Start. And in my article, A Proxy, you know, Proxy War on the Planet, about all the dangers that the U.S. is tolerating and encouraging to wage the proxy war, the nuclear threat is one of them because one official says, and I quote this official saying that they don't see the possibility of any talks right now on renewal. So yeah, if this war goes on for a long time, and if that's the prevailing stance, then we lose New Start or we risk losing New Start, which is so ominous because without New Start, then there's no remaining limitations on the U.S. and Russia to build up their nuclear weapon stockpiles, and already. 
the those both stockpiles are, are at insane numbers. I mean, I don't think there should be any nuclear weapons, but but re- even relative, like like relatively, it's just so many weapons on both sides, and so we should be reducing them, not encouraging more to be built. But that's the current policy. There's there's no talks at all right now, and that's very ominous. The second question is about uh, Max Blumenthal and I recently spoke at the Collision Tech Conference, which is a really big gathering held every year. It was in Toronto, and uh, Eric Schmidt of Google spoke, Carmelo Anthony of the NBA, he spoke. You know, it was a very diverse cast of characters, and Max and I somehow got invited to speak, and uh, there was a day or two of media panels, and so all these other people in media were there, but Max and I stood out because we, you know, we're not saying what everyone else is saying. I mean, they were talking about, you know, like all the other panels are about the need to uh, crack down on disinformation and all this stuff. And we were saying that actually it's the media that's the biggest purveyor of disinformation. So it's right. hard to call for cracking down on yourself. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, and we just put out the video at the gray zone. And um, so you're asking if afterwards there was interaction with other members of the media. No, there wasn't. I mean, we, like we saw the looks on their faces. They were not happy with what we were saying because we're talking about we're basically saying that the media spreads disinformation. It serves the ruling class. They won't cover the OPCW scandal. Julian Assange, you know, his persecution will decide the threat of media freedom. All these things that the U.S. media just you know, doesn't want to hear. And so, yeah, uh, we got some nasty looks and I, I, I saw some scowls and I saw <laughs> A big name television personality sort of uh, give us not a very pleasant look. I mean, you know, they weren't happy to see it. But afterwards, you know, when we went outside, it was it was just people in the audience were coming up to us and were very positive. And um, I saw some people, some 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 media people complain on Twitter, uh, but no kind of face, no face to face interactions. Generally, people don't really want to debate us. You know, they don't really want to confront us because I think. <laughs> They, they understand deep down that they're, the facts are not on their side, you know? So, uh, but yeah, I saw some people who I've criticized publicly and don't respect very much. And they know that. And I think they feel the same way. And that was a bit awkward, but we didn't interact, you know? So that's so, what that was. And the video for that is, yeah. And the video for that is up. I'll put a link to it in the show notes here. People can watch it if they haven't seen it. It's a good talk. It's me and Max just talking for 18 minutes about the gray zone and, our views on the media. Sure. Uh, I was hoping, you know, corporate journalists would have come up to you and tried to debate you, but it didn't sound like that happened. But, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, it, it'd be, I'd be fine with it if they did, but I just, in general, we represent something that they don't, you know? So. Yeah. Well, thank you, Aaron. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. All right. Next caller. Hey, Aaron. This is Francois. Nice uh, to speak with you, and thanks for taking my call. I have a quick comment on uh, following up on Rodrigo on the Collision Conference. I couldn't help be, but be um, amused at how much verbal precautions the two introducers to you took as they brought you up, and all of the verbal padding around, well, this is controversial and so on. That was kind of funny. Uh, but thanks for speaking out there. That was fantastic. Um, I have two quick questions, if you don't mind. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so the the first one uh, pertains to sanctions. You were touching on that earlier. And um, I'm always surprised at the lack of discussion in the U.S. at the fact that sanctions are an act of war. 
that sanctions from a legal international legal framework do participate in the notion of war. And they are not something that can be undertaken. I mean, it's like a blockade, for example, yeah? And that, there's never any discussion that you can see in the U.S. about that. Uh, are you aware of, you know, I mean, how do people think about that? Oh, no, it's taken for granted that we have the right to destroy foreign economies, to cripple them, to deny people food and medicine. They're just taken for granted. And that barely gets discussed. It's so natural that we don't even acknowledge it. Yeah, I mean, when people the, in the when U.S. The US know, yeah, go ahead. When the U.S. passed the Caesar Act, imposing these really medieval sanctions on Syria, it passed with a unanimous vo- voice vote. They didn't even um, do a roll call. They just, yeah, everyone's like, yep, yay, you know, and now an entire uh, economy that's already suffering from a 10-year dirty war gets cut off from the world. Just like that. Mm-hmm. And if you ask mo- like most people, they wouldn't know about it, you know? Yep. Yeah, I'm always amazed at the fact that people, for example, in the U.S. don't know that the U.S. was blockading Japan for quite a bit of time before the Second World War, preventing them from having access to oil. Now, I'm not going to defend Japan for other things, but very aggressive war actions, and those are taken for granted, as you're saying. Uh, so anyway, that, that, that seems to be lacking in the public discourse here, I think, uh, in the sense of people not realizing that it is, from an international law point of view, the equivalent to bombing somebody. Yeah, and you know uh, what? You know what? It's so actually embedded, and I've talked about this before, but actually sanctions... Using, san- using the term sanctions, which I do, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this, even sanctions is a term of propaganda. The actual right. term is unilateral coercive measures because exactly. san- sanctions implies some degree of uh, consent on the part of somebody to impose these to punish someone for bad behavior. That's what a sanction is. But these are not sanctions. These, these are, these yeah, are unilateral coercive measures by the U.S. just deciding on its own to punish somebody. So it's not a sanction, it's a, it's a siege, it, it's a punishment. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the notion of sanction kind of supposes that there is an absolute framework of right and wrong, and one of the countries is, oh, the, the person imposing sanctions is justified, which, you know, <laughs> is, is indeed presupposed, but not accurate. Um, if I may have a, a question on something else, I'm increasingly looking at the tensions between Israel and sorry, between Israel and um, Iran. And I'm concerned that we're heading towards a war there. You might have seen that Saudi Arabia is now letting our flights of Israeli flights over Saudi Arabia, which are presumably civilian, but could be military as well. Uh, do you have a view on that? And I'm, I'm quite concerned that, you know, this increasing the tension in the area. Well, I've always felt, I've always been skeptical that, an actual all-out war with Iran would break out because Iran seems to me to be able to, to able to defend itself, and the U.S. and its allies don't want to attack countries that can actually defend themselves. You know, they they wage the war in the Donbas in Ukraine because the Donbas republics that that would be a way to bleed Russia, but not directly attacking Russia. Mm-hmm. And so, and they wage the dirty war in Syria with the aim of bleeding Iran because Iran and Damascus were close allies, but um, to, but that wouldn't be attacking Iran proper. So the strategy to me has always been to try to weaken Iran wherever the U S can uh, without engaging in full scale war, because in a full scale war, Iran could defend itself and they could, you know, their allies Hezbollah and Hezbollah 
can do damage to Israel. They've shown that before. So, I, you know, I mean, who knows? I, I, it, I can't make predictions. And certainly, I certainly think aggression towards Iran will ramp up. And the biggest sign to me of that is the Biden administration's refusal to reenter the Iran deal. The mm. fact that, you know, because if they were to, to, to reenter the Iran deal, it makes it harder to engage in aggression and sabotage against Iran because now your partner is in a really important pact. And Biden had, has, had, has had every opportunity to do that, but he's chosen the Trump policy. And the Trump policy is confrontation. Now, Israel does have agency there. I mean, to the extent Biden would reenter, they might decide that there's something they don't want to allow and act unilaterally, don't you think? Uh, sorry, I don't follow your question. So Israel, I, I'm, I'm less concerned about direct war between the U.S. and Iran, but I'm quite concerned about Israel's intentions and how they might react if Biden was to reenter the, um, the, the negotiations. It's my, it's my sense that Israel doesn't act without the approval of the U.S., Israel is a client state of the U.S. It couldn't survive without the U.S. and all the support the U.S. gives it. So I look, I could be wrong. Uh, the Israeli uh -huh. leaders could be even crazier than than I take them to be. So who knows? But I um, I've seen little evidence of Israel really acting strongly against U.S. interests, at least at least recently. OK, um, I have a slightly yeah. different point of view, but uh, time will tell. Thanks for taking my calls, Aaron. Appreciate no what you do. Thanks for the call. Thank you. All right. Okay. Hello, Sam. All right, Aaron. How you been? It's been a minute. Yeah. How you doing? Ah, can't complain. Trying to enjoy this nice weather while it lasts. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, you're right. They're a client state, but um, I, I would say now with the with the rise of APAC, I mean, at this point. I, I wouldn't. I, I think Minko Pellet used to say it's the dog wagging the tail, not the other way around. I'm like, eh, the tail seems to get stronger every day. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. Right. But um, to your point, love the uh, the whole thing about the press conference. Of course, no one is going to confront you because if they confront you, you would just point out, oh, okay, so you're the purveyor of truths. Remind me again, how many of you guys in corporate media, you know, said, spoke against the Iraq War? Oh, none of you? Okay, yeah, that's why you guys have your job. I mean, it, you, all you have to do is just check them with that, and they tend to get quiet super quick. But I would say, I just wanted to call in because you were saying how John Bolton, I mean, he's admitted m many things over the air, but everyone had said, oh, well, how come Jake Tapper didn't push him back? I'm like, when has Jake Tapper ever been known to push back anybody on anything? If it's not a country we're at war with, it's, oh, yeah, okay, cool, we, we coup d'etat uh, countries. Because if he pushes back, remember, these are the same agencies that the minute Guaido declared himself president, they said, yep, there's interim president Guaido, and from that point on, Maduro the dictator. Exactly. That's, that's the framework. I mean, of course they're not going to push back because the minute the government says X, they'll say X and there should be no discussion about it. Yep. So, I, I mean, I really am not surprised in that regard. I, I don't know why everyone was surprised that, you know, CNN or anyone else didn't really push back on him. Like, that's because they want to keep their jobs. <laughs> they're not going to push back and lose, lose a cushy job. So, I don't know. I, I was just, I'm just happy to now it's the quiet part out loud more and more. So it makes it hard for this, uh, "Quote unquote humanitarianism intervention to be seen other than what it is neoliberalism. It's we want the oil, we want the the dominance, and that's that. And I'm like, I'm in a way, I'm happy because it, it kind of shows who's an actual liberal to say I 
I don't feel like I've been pointing these things out versus the, the pseudo-liberals. I agree with everything you said. Yeah. Anyway, but I don't want to take up more of the time. Uh, looking forward to tomorrow with uh, you and Katie. And enjoy the rest of your Sunday, bro. Thanks, Sam. You too. Okay. No work, Chris. Hey, happy Sunday, Aaron. Um, you know, you guys kind of covered the Bolton thing on, on Monday and then on the Friday show. I, I agree. It would have been nice to see Tapper not i was just talking to danny haifong and he's like tapper tapped out on asking questions he certainly did he certainly <laughs> did and it would have been nice of you to you know follow it up a little more i mean I, you know we all know that with bolton being in in his the positions he's been in the and, and knowing the u.s government that there's been coup d'etat attempts by this government that he's certainly probably been privy or or a part of those um you know, that Friday, just switching gears a little bit, that Friday interview with Chris Ryan was supremely interesting. I've listened to it like one and a half times. And um, what was your biggest takeaway from him? Like, I thought I thought he said so many really interesting things about uh, about the history of humans and and civilization. And and I liked your question of like you kind of said it laughingly, but like. How do we get back to that kind of earlier in the interview when he was talking about hunter-gatherer uh, groups and, and whatnot? But I was just curious what your biggest takeaway was from uh, from Chris Ryan. Yeah, so what this refers to is Katie Halper and I, our new study it's this week, interviewed an author named Chris Ryan, written a couple of books, including Sex at Dawn. I think that's his most famous book, Sex at Dawn. And a more recent one about human civilization. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Um, he was talking about back when we lived in hunter-gatherer societies 10,000 years ago, that societies were based on respect, not power. So people who actually would occupy senior positions or positions of leadership, it wouldn't be because they sought those positions, but it would be because they were essentially nominated based on their record of service to the community. And so Basically, somebody in power would not would not be someone who sought power. It would be someone who would be put there by the community. And I just thought, man, imagine if that's how <laughs> we, we live today. That would be amazing. And um, it does speak to me. I mean, in terms of a takeaway, it speaks to me that our human nature is complicated, but it's not fixed. It's always evolving. And just because our society is organized in a certain way right now, it doesn't mean that this is this is a law of nature and that things could change through willpower and through effort, you know, but it's difficult. It's hard. It's hard in our society. It's, it's easy to talk about, but very hard to implement, especially, you know, even like, you know, just the medium that we're speaking in, like, you know, I'm speaking to Chris Ryan, he's an author. He has time to write a book. Katie and I have time to interview him and it gets put out there, but not everyone has the time to read a book or uh, write a book and do all these things. And so everyone's, it's like, the way our society is organized makes it difficult to get together and organize because everyone's got their own certain level of, you know, everyone's got their own issues and their own uh, commitments. And it's, it's hard. It's easy to talk about, but it's hard to implement. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to him. He's got a lot to say about different aspects of human yeah. life. I thought was really cool. Everyone should check that one out if, if you can, if you have time. Uh, one last quick question, Aaron. I know you have a queue going. Um, you know, 
the Austin American Statesman released the like an hour and a half of video from inside the school in Evalde this week. Um, mm-hmm. Skimmed through that yesterday, and and it's immensely sad and, and frustrating to to see. Um, certainly, the guy looking at his phone and the other guy using hand sanitizer, all while kids are bleeding out and and there's a shooter in a classroom that they're not confronting. Um, it makes me more staunchly in the camp of defunding the police. And we have to have some form of enforcing laws in society. function. But it seems that the police are not the right uh, vehicle for that at this point. Is that something you support? And what's your reaction to that video that came out this week? I'm sure you at least saw the, the four minute clip that they released and then I'll uh, hang up and you yeah. to hear that, but everybody else speak. Thank you. Bear. Thanks. Yeah. The video is terrible. Do I believe in defunding the police? I don't actually, I do think that we need some sort of police force. I do. Um, I, and I base that on mainly looking at polls of communities that have really high crime and, and all those things, I, don't, I think they want police from what I can gather from polls. So I'm not an abolitionist. Obviously, there needs to be a huge level of reform, like massively and changing the concept even of policing and what it is. Um, but just I don't I just don't think the slogan of defunding is the is the is the path. I think there needs to be a massive reform movement and a huge change in how we conceive of policing. But uh, I just don't think the blanket slogan of defunding is, is uh, I don't think it works. I don't think it works. And I'm basing that on, on polls I've seen. And maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's the way I see it. But uh, anyway, to be... Um, Just to retort to that 20, yeah. 10 seconds, uh, you know, Nick Cruz especially, but, but uh, all of RBN talks about this. And Nick Cruz points out some polls that he's seen that he interprets as as minorities, especially inner city communities, um, supporting defund the police and, and seeing it differently as, as you just described it. So just as a recommendation to you, it, 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 you might be uh, keen to listen to what Cruz. Okay, fair enough. And you, and you know what? And obviously, look, it's, it's obvious that they don't need more money. So the idea, right. of, the idea of cutting police budgets, I, I'm, I'm into. So I'm actually, I'm not opposed to that. I just... To frame it, the issue, the answer so, slowly as de, solely as defund. I think that's the problem. Not that we shouldn't defund the police. I think we should, but it needs to. Be, I just think we need to frame it in a way that speaks to a, an even deeper reform than just giving them less money. I guess that's my point. I hear you. Thanks for your time, Aaron. Thank you. Okay, um, Annie. Um, hello. Can Hi you there. hear me? Yeah. So, hello, thank you for the uh, podcast. It was really interesting. I'm the first time here, so I have a question, but I, maybe you have already covered it. I don't know, but a little bit of a background for me. Like, I'm Russian-speaking, I'm English-speaking, and I live in Europe, so in exactly in Germany. So I can see the situation, this whole conflict over Ukraine, a bit from an, uh, uh, from outside view. Mm. So my question is like everyone is talking about the preemptive war being a war crime and everything I can understand it 
and of course I'm against the war, but could you please tell me in this situation what other measures could uh, Russia take to finally stop the NATO expansion to East? Look, it's a great question, and people put that to me all the time because I just don't accept that Russia had no choice but to invade. I think they were put into a corner. I think they were in a really tough position, but I don't see that they had no other options. France and Germany were not on board with expanding NATO, and they so far had kept Ukraine and Georgia out of out of NATO, and there was no indication to me that France and Germany were shifting their position to accept membership. Maybe, maybe Russia knows something that I don't. So now... But that raises a, a, another issue is that the issue was not just Ukraine formally joining NATO. It was that whether Ukraine formally joined or not, Ukraine was effectively being incorporated into NATO uh, with all this U.S. Uh, weaponry and training that was going on. And even if Ukraine didn't join NATO, there was the possibility of Ukraine hosting U.S. Uh, weapon systems that could hit Russia. That was, I think, a very real threat. And certainly the fact that the U.S. refused to take NATO off the table kept the, da the danger there. So what Russia could have done, they did in December put out draft treaties with the U.S. and NATO, which the U.S. immediately rejected. But they could have promoted that more. They could have, you know, Vladimir Putin could have done a speech aimed at the U.S. public saying, look, this is what I've put out there to your government. If they don't go along with this, we're going to have a serious problem because they're not meeting our core security demands. I don't think he cared about trying to reach global opinion. He only cared about reaching Russian opinion, which is it's his right, I suppose. But to avoid a war, I'm of the mind of why not do everything you can to avoid a war? So why not do more speeches? Why not threaten privately to shut off gas pipelines, which Russia, which gives Russia, I think, a lot of leverage? Why not go to the U.N. and try to get a peacekeeping mission for the Donbass, which Russia has talked about before? The U.S. would have vetoed it, but at least they could have tried. You know? So those are some of the measures I think could have been taken. Now, look, it's still possible that those measures, if Russia had done that, then that would have tipped its hand too much, and that would have then put the U.S. and Ukraine in a more advantageous position. And it's possible, as people have said, that, that Ukraine was preparing to outright invade the Donbass, and so Russia had to act. I just haven't seen the evidence for that yet, so I'm not willing to accept the argument. But... Um, I'm open to it. I'm open to the possibility that Russia had no choice. I really am. But I just think to be able to make that case, you have to meet a very high burden of evidence. Uh, for example, like uh, for the last 30 years, I have uh, really seen this. I don't know if uh, I haven't seen uh, the Putin's uh, speeches translated into English in your media, in any any news outlets there. But for, uh, frankly speaking, I'm not a fan of Putin. I'm not exactly a fan of his domestic policies, but uh, listening to him or listening to their um, exterior minister, I think it's called in English, um, uh, listening foreign to minister, them. Foreign minister, yeah. Yeah, yeah foreign minister. Yeah. So listen, Lavrov, uh, his name is. So listening to them and listening to American part, uh, listening to Europe. Like, like Europe is trying to come to a truce or something, but they are failing at it. And uh, like, frankly, from the point of view of international law, Russia is more sane. I don't know, like everything Putin says, he's, uh, 
I think from uh, I don't know maybe I uh, there are things I don't know but he sounds reasonable. Well, I agree that Russia is more sane. Uh, absolutely, I mean Russia respected the Minsk Accords, which was reached in 2015 and could have put an end to all this if Ukraine had been willing to implement it. And as I, as I've written about, the U.S. instead of pressuring Ukraine to implement the Minsk Accords to make peace in the Donbas, basically have Donbas demilitarized in exchange for giving it some limited autonomy. The U.S. sided with the Ukraine far right, which didn't want to make any peace and wanted to keep the war going. And Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president who signed Minsk, just recently admitted that if you read between the lines of what he's saying, that Minsk was a scam, that Minsk, that the goal of Minsk, he said, was to delay the war and give us time to give us time to prepare for fighting. So Minsk was basically a smokescreen and Ukraine had no intention of implementing it. So given you're facing foes who have no intention of honoring their agreements, and are you know increasingly integrating themselves militarily uh, and stepping up attacks and you know Russia was in a very very tough position. I totally get that. And yes, there are a lot of people inside the borders of Ukraine who want to be a part of Russia, don't want to be a part of the coup-led uh, government that's been in there since 2014. So it's a tough situation, and you know you can argue that. Just as the U.S. argued with, you know, Kosovo and Yugoslavia that, you know, we're here to defend the rights of people who have the right to self-determination, you know, Russia can say and has said that about the people of the Donbass. I just, I still think, though, I mean, I don't think the U.S. use of force in Kosovo is justified, and so I have to apply the same principles to Ukraine. And uh, what, what I will say, though, is they were in a really, really tough position, and I definitely think they tried diplomacy. I just wish they had tried. I guess my point is I wish they had tried it more, but I don't deny that they really tried it for the, the previous eight years and it just didn't work. Yeah, the thing is like they are, were already in Ukraine, not, uh, okay, not de facto, but uh, like uh, with the weapons, with the yep. military help and everything, they were already in NATO. They were like on the border of Russia. There was no way, like starting from Poland, uh, and every other country, they, they they were like, this is going too far, this is going too far. We had an agreement. And then this is already Ukraine. That's, that's the thing. Like, I have Ukrainian friends and Russian friends. And most of them, when I ask this question, they are saying that, they, uh, for example, Russia could have applied to United Nations, saying that this is aggression against me and mm-hmm. uh, there has to be some decision. But uh, from what I can see... The uh, the case with the Russian journalist, uh, poisoned Russian journalist. Like what Germany said, they said like we have an evidence that he is poisoned. I'm not saying he was not poisoned by Putin, but Germany said we have an evidence. Like this was in the German uh, news, so they had an evidence. They are sending to uh, USA. And they uh, they cannot send it to Russia because the labor uh, left that that did the research, they said, like, sending the evidence to Russia will expose uh, us and it's right, against right, our right. interests. Yeah. 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 And uh, Merkel's uh, speaker, I think, he told that they don't trust Russia. But, like, yeah. this is crazy. This is not justice at all. Okay, mm-hmm. if, you are, if you are so sure of it, so UN is doing nothing for Russia. Like, I got, is- I got it. Any... Thank you for the call. We're going to move on because I have a lot of callers. So thank you for calling. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for calling. Okay, bye-bye. Have a good night. Bye-bye. All right. Jeff. Aaron. 
Hey, can you hear me? Hi there. Yeah. Hey, uh, wanted to give you an update. It, it may be cutting into Max's profit margin, but uh, Goliath was on sale on Kindle. So okay. I got that, uh, All right. got that nice. last week. So I appreciate nice. that. Yeah. Um, just, a couple, just a couple random thoughts and just not really a question, but just to continue from last week, just the impact that, you know, kind of my transformation from what I talked about last week, but just want to expand a little bit. The, the impact of, of the WMD lie and what that had sort of on myself personally, and like I said, my friends uh, mm-hmm. cannot be overstated. And just I'd, hopefully you and, and the other independent journalists keep that in mind. There, there's a lot of us out there that just we keep quiet. We don't talk that much. Obviously, I'm, I'm calling you. But that was really significant when that happened, especially Colin Powell. Um, and sort of my transformation, why I asked about Israel is I realized that lie. And, you know, I went off in 2006. And by that point, I kind of knew. But, you know, you go because that's I'm a Marine. That's, that's what we do. Um, and I just over the course of the years, just you, Max, you know, all the all the independent journalists, Glenn, I respect all you guys. I don't agree with everything you guys say, but I, I have so much respect for you that I was like, OK, that's why I wanted to call last week. So just wanted for you guys to keep that in mind is just that that lie was really significant for us. Um, yeah. And the last point was Matt Ho and I served together in Okinawa. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure you you know who Matt is. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. So I haven't, you know, we're, we're connected on various social things, but I haven't, I haven't talked to him in a little while, but we were in Okinawa together in I think 2002. But um, that, that was sort of it. So I just wanted to tell you, I got the book and just give you those things. So thank you. Well, very cool. I'm glad you got it. And so Goliath is Max Blumenthal's book about Israel. And I think it's, the best contemporary book there is to understand how Israeli society is run today. One, so. one, one more quick thing as I was reading the book yeah. and just, he was going through, I just got through the first 20 pages because believe it or not, I'm reading uh, meditations too at the same time, which is a whole nother <laughs> thing with the Stoic book. But, uh, you know, I, I immediately I started thinking about us in Iraq. And once you get, once you got in country in the war, and you realize how many th- and I didn't I did not see any war crimes. I know that some did take place. I personally didn't see any. Mm-hmm. But you see things that aren't reported um, and you realize, OK, this is I mean, I could we can whatever at a different time. I could tell you about, you know, what went on in Ramadi a little bit from my from what I saw. But, you know, I started reading and I realized, OK, so Israel obviously is doing things that we don't we only see one side of. And that's so far the in the book that I'm reading and I'm enjoying is I'm seeing the other perspective that you never get in Western press. Oh yeah. Um, oh, well the, the self-censorship around Israel has been so extreme and re- in recent years, it's gotten a little bit better, a tiny bit better. I think partly because Trump was such, so openly embracing Israel that it became more acceptable for liberals to be critical. But, uh, Oh yeah. Well, especially historically, just the, Israel has been shielded by the Western press and everything it does. And yeah, uh, so that's, but that's but my look, first takeaway. Yeah, but yeah. there's you know there's also there's a you know a large or not a large but there's a important community of Israeli journalists and historians who have done good work in going through the archives. And Amira Haas is an Israeli journalist who lives in the occupied territories. Gideon Levy is another amazing Israeli journalist, and they speak the truth. And they're they're an exception. And what makes actually it's interesting with them is they're far more. These are prominent Israeli journalists, far more honest about Israeli crimes than any prominent U.S. journalist could be. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's just how it is. Awesome. OK. Awesome. Aaron. Thank you so much. I got a lot of callers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. All right, okay. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.
Hey, Aaron. Hi there. Hey, um, so I was just thinking back to the sanctions discourse and just kind of want to break down the, I guess, the fl- like the framing that we hear in the media and from politicians that, well, I mean, first of all, that sanctions aren't an act of war or that they're not affecting like a civilian population, but just kind of the, I guess, the logic behind the, I mean, just the whole thinking that it's within the purview of the United States to dole out punishment <laughs> to civilian yeah. populations yeah. of other countries. And along with that, like the, the attitude, like, you know, it extends beyond that where it's like, we won't legitimate the existence of other governments by talking to them, by negotiating with them. We won't legitimate the, like the interests like that other countries might have like security interests. We won't, we won't even like discuss that they exist and our media won't either. We won't like let any of their leaders like appear like on our TV. So, you know, no one ever hears what, you know, Putin or Lav Rob or, or Z or anything like that. We don't he- like, we're like, we're so above it all. Like they don't have the right to speak, to represent themselves and they don't have the right to not be punished. And it's like, I mean, first of all, you think about it, it's incredibly like juvenile, like to approach like, you know, international relations like that, especially we have a, a planet where we kind of have to cooperate to some degree to not like, I mean, basically to survive into the future. Um, but just this kind of like anti-relational paradigm, I just think about the worst parents like you've ever seen or like the worst <laughs> pet owners yeah. that they're thinking about punishment I won't legitimize this behavior, but they never listen or like build trust or rapport. And it's like, these are stupid ideas. Like, how is it that they're like, is, are they just using it for marketing and they know it's stupid or do they really have this like, kind of like, I don't know, like I would be insulting cavemen to, to call it like a paleolithic um, frame of mind, but it's incredibly primitive. Um, yeah, well, look, if you think about it from the point of view of a professional sadist, a.k.a. a U.S. official, it's a beautiful system because it's bloodless. Like, you don't have to send troops. You don't have to, you don't have to occupy anyone. You don't have to even carry out a drone strike. But you can achieve, uh, you know, a really substantial war aim, which is to cripple a country's economy and force its people into submission so that they turn against the government. So, you know, they carry out essentially the regime change on your behalf or make it a lot easier for you to carry out regime change when the time comes. That's been the guiding strategy in Cuba, everywhere, every place that's been targeted by U.S. sanctions. And it's totally imperial and it's totally sadistic. Like no Venezuelan or Nicaraguan or Syrian voted for any of these officials in Washington who are still arrogating themselves the right to decide if they eat or not. It's the most fascist, actually, political policy I can think of because nobody voted for these people in Washington to decide whether or not, you know, you're a Syrian who can download an app or buy a certain good that you need or take the LSATs. You know, Syrians can't take the LSATs because of software being banned. I mean, things like that. And um, yeah, and it works beautifully because there's no blood, there's no troops. So no, you, don't even, you don't even have to discuss it. And that's why, you know, if you read the New York Times, whenever they talk about like a targeted country like Syria or, or Venezuela, the best you'll get 
is at the bottom of the story. They'll say, like, like, like they'll talk about how terrible Syria and Venezuela are right now under Maduro and Assad, right? And how, how horrible things are. And they'll say, you know, and factors include, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and they'll include, like, Western sanctions somewhere in, like, a list in passing, as if it's just some random thing among many other problems. Yeah. And as if it's also, and as if it's natural, as if it's like, you know, uh, as if it's like a, like a lack of rainfall, which is natural from the earth. It's sanctions. Yeah. That just exists. But no one ever questions the fundamental premise of, you know, what right do we have to impose a single sanction on any country? And uh, that's why it works so beautifully. Yeah. That's a really good point. I like, I just kind of wonder, like, maybe it's just the nature of capitalism in a capitalist country, but I wonder why nobody ever thought of kind of this Chinese model. Like, why don't we invest in relationships with other countries and invest in our own infrastructure and public here? And then, like, we can, like, succeed without having to do all this, like, domineering and violent behavior. Well, you dominate someone if you think you're better than them. And that's the problem. There's a supremacy problem here. That's what yeah. drives all of it. We think we're better. So we think we 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 exist to impose our will on others. That's just what we do. There's no other way. So when you have that supremacist attitude, which is called American exceptionalism, but really it's American supremacy, then there's no yeah. choice but to dominate people and coerce them because you can't imagine cooperating with them because cooperation presumes that you see them as equal yeah. or somewhat equal. We don't, you know? Yeah. So it's all like that's... Like, become this kind of, kind of like the boil of the sort of toxic ego of uh, the human race, I guess. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. I mean, just look at them. Like, look at how they talk. And look at the looks on their faces. John Bolton, that's a really disturbed <laughs> individual. It's a really, really, and that's, that's what all these people are. They're disturbed people who are taking out their own personal dysfunctions on the world. And yeah. the world pays the price. Yeah. I, I kind of miss Paul Ryan. He had a particularly uh, ghoulish look. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess everyone's got their favorite ghouls. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay, thanks Very for calling. Okay, Thank you. Bye. All right, Joshua. Uh, good evening, afternoon. Uh, I swear I wasn't going to talk, but I started off, my notes was fascist agenda, and then you kind of ended up there. So I just have a few bullet points. Um, I think there was a statistic that 80% of Americans uh, or people, maybe it was just Americans, don't have time to read a book. So, I mean, I, and I think that's by, by plan. Like, if you don't give people time, then uh, ignorance is bliss for everyone around, especially for uh, capitalism. I wanted to talk a Absolutely. little bit about blowback and, and how blowback benefits the one-party system that we have. Um, to say that we have peaceful transitions between the dirty hands. Um, mm. And blowback doesn't just occur abroad uh, from us fomenting terrorists um, so that if they do attack us, then we say, oh, look, they're attacking us, so we have to attack back. Uh, we need to exercise first strike doctrine. We need to invest in Iron Dome technologies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. More arms races, more uh, ammunition depots in the Ukraine so that we can buy more arms. We need to upgrade the arms. Uh, I'm just saying that that's maybe where the trillion dollars or close to trillion dollars that we talk about is, is spent. And then we do a whole bunch of donations uh, to these countries for arms, too. It's, it's, a, it's amazing disaster capitalism. Um, so uh, 
thinking about it from a nuclear perspective where we can't even uh, restart or get a new start on the start and the salt treaties that weren't <laughs> yes. enough. Um, uh, and then you look at something like artificial intelligence coming down the pike and its ability to be uh, put into play in the battlefield um, and how we're going to have to have, uh, well, if we want to survive, uh, some guidance around that that is not uh, guided by warmongers. Um, and so, I mean, that definitely gets us from uh, away from defunding the police, but I want to I just talk a little bit about defund the police. Um, I think that the terminology has been co-opted. Uh, I don't care how much more money we give them. If they're going to use it to militarize at home, they need no more money. In regards to the type of services we need on the streets, it's the people taking care of the mental health needs that yeah. come as a, role, a result of trying to implement a social murder regime at home so that people are blind to what you're doing abroad. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was going to keep this brief, uh, but I think I'm at two minutes, so maybe I'll go for Um You know, when well, I also no, think I, jo about... Joshua, Joshua, sorry, listen. No, yeah. I need... Uh, uh, we have a long queue, so you gotta, so you got to wrap it up. So make your last point. But uh, All right, so my other points are climate in regards to the sea channels that it's opening up and then what we fight about in regards to who owns those sea channels and the oil underneath it. Uh, I also want to think about quantum computing and computing and silicon going forward and how much we can afford to continue to invest in lithium mining around the world at home or abroad to support the needs of the technocrats. Um, and then, uh, really, what is behind the space wars besides, uh, I don't know, trying to map out boundaries in space? Like, did borders really work out well for all the imperialists here um, on this planet? Um, and uh, I think before we decide how much more money to spend going to Mars, we should probably figure out how not to do the same thing to Mars that we've done here in the gotcha. future. Gotcha. Uh, but all of this is very good for disaster capitalism. And I will sum up with this. There is a book by Brian Walsh. It's called End Times. It's like the top 10 things that will erase us. Climate change is featured quite a bit, but that was before the people that are currently in positions of puppetry and kleptocracy or oligarchy support were put in positions of access from those same people. So Got I mean, we have Got a ways it. to Joshua, go. thank you. Thank yeah. you for the call. Uh, you said yeah. a lot. You said a lot. I'm not smart enough to deal with most of what you said. I'll just say on the issue of AI, at this conference I went to, collision in Toronto where Max Blumenthal and I spoke. Eric Schmidt of Google was there. He spoke. He was speaking a lot about AI. And I didn't understand most of what he said, but I did just emotionally feel very scared at what he was saying. His, his tone, his demeanor, how passionate he was about the powers and the potential of AI and what it could do basically to, uh, automize society just was scary. And, uh, it's uh, it's something to uh, to be wary of, obviously, and uh, I don't know. That's all I have to say about that. All right. So, what I'm going to do is ask the queue. I'm not going to have time to get to everybody today, so I'm going to ask anybody in the queue who really wants to speak. You know, please stay on. If you don't have a burning desire to speak, then I will ask you to humbly withdraw yourself from the queue because I'm not going to have time for everybody. But if you really, really got to get something off your chest, then please stay in there, and I will get to you. Okay, Heidi. Hey, hi I there. was wondering, hi, um, I won't chew your ear. Uh, I was just going to ask what your um, thoughts were on Bucha, why there wasn't really uh, an in-depth investigation done on it. And the other thing I wanted to tell you was 
I have a close personal friend that lives in Russia who has some Ukrainian heritage and this whole thing is like tearing him apart mm. and we talk about it often. And one of the things that came up was why couldn't Ukraine have basically just um, let itself be, you know, uh, I don't want to say invaded or whatever, conquered, whatever, but kind of like France with the Nazis, you know, basically been civilized about it and then developed an underground resistance, if that's how they truly felt. I know that the U.S. was basically encouraging them to be arrogant and, and you know, a lot of them strike me as kind of the way uh, the, the people in the southern United States are. Uh, about the civil war, how they're saying the South will rise again. You know, that's kind of how the Ukrainians strike me right now. They're very arrogant in that fashion. And um, that those are the only two things I had questions about. Well, okay. Yeah. Um, I can't speak for the attitudes of the Ukrainian people, except to say that I do sympathize with anyone who's invaded and they want to fight back. I think that's fair. Even if your government is largely at fault for the invasion. I still think it's natural to want to fight back against invaders who, you know, have crossed over from a neighboring country. And, uh, you know, went to area, you know, Russia didn't just go into the Donbass to defend the people there. They went far beyond that. And so I think it's understandable for people to want to fight back. In terms of the government, like Zelensky, I think they were just, they were criminal. They knew this could happen. They knew what it would take to avoid it, basically declare neutrality uh, commit to not joining NATO and respect the Minsk Accords. And that could have been the end of it. And given up on Crimea, which they're never getting back anyway. Everyone knows that. And everyone knows that most, the vast majority of people in Crimea want to be a part of Russia. So Zelensky and his people, for whatever reason, they decided to get used by the U.S. And they are presiding over a disaster. And uh, it's horrible. At the same time, I'm not going to fault an average Ukrainian who wants to fight back against someone invading their country. Even if I think their government in Washington played a major role in making that invasion happen. And as for Bucha, yeah, it kind of went away. It was, the allegation was lodged. I have no idea what happened. I think war crimes happen in war, so it wouldn't surprise me if Russia committed war crimes there. But there has not been, as far as I know, a forensic investigation of the bodies which would have been paramount. Scott Ritter was making that point that the bodies from what he saw didn't look like they had been lying there for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, it looked like to him they were recently killed. And he was suggesting that happened after Russia left, but I have no idea. I, I don't know what happened. But um, it is interesting that there have been atrocity allegations like the theater in Mariupol, and that town at the time was controlled by Azov, and Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zones don't work on this. It's just the details don't really add up to the allegations. And, um, you know, these are always worth being critical of. And in general, just notice that we're not hearing it as much about Ukraine these days. It's not dominating the headlines like it was. And I think it's become increasingly difficult for the people behind the proxy war to keep it in the news because there's so much else going on. And that's a problem for them. It's a problem for Zelensky, too. Okay. Next call is Spenny. Hey there. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring it back to the whole Tapper Bolden thing. Um, so I get, if you want to, uh, you know, push this aside for later, but for some context, I've been staying with my, my mom this summer, who is a, a typical, you know, elderly liberal voter. And she watches network news and cable all the time. I find it unpalatable, but 
um, so much of that is commercial, uh, just in the sense that it it's about selling something. And I think it reaches so many people. And when that Bolton Tapper thing happened, I feel like something that wasn't discussed a lot or something that I, I, maybe for me, like just wasn't discussed enough was that after Bolton says, you know, yes, I plan coups elsewhere, whatever. And Tapper says, oh, you know where? Bolton plugs his book. He 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 says, oh, well, you can read all about that, you know, in my, in, my, in my book that I just wrote. And I guess what I'm wondering is of of you Aaron is is how 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 like substantively influential do you think that sort of grift is because i think it reaches so many people but i i guess i don't know how to contextualize it uh, importance wise in within like american imperialism and and, and foreign policy and, and and party messaging. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, look, if I I think I understand what you're saying. The, the problem is that Bolton's attitude is essentially bipartisan. The coup sure. he tried to pull off in Venezuela was applauded by Democrats. Uh, when Juan Guaido right, right. came to Congress, Nancy Pelosi gave him a standing ovation. Yes. And so in that context, when you have the entire spectrum of the political establishment on board behind overthrowing foreign states. It's hard then for criticism of that to get out because there's no space for it inside that consensus. You have such a narrow spectrum of debate, which means anybody who dissents from it just will get pushed out. And so that's why, you know, for all the Trump mania of the last four years, when Trump pulled off, when Trump tried to pull off the coup in Venezuela, you never saw MSNBC being critical of that. The, the worst, the, like the furthest that they would go is someone like Chris Murphy would make fun of Trump because it wasn't succeeding. But he wasn't against, right. he wasn't against the underlying policy. And media basically identifies with the liberal wing of the, with, with the liberal wing of the war state. So, you know, they would go along with that too, that Trump's coup attempt in Venezuela was unsuccessful. That's as far as they could go in criticizing it, but they accepted the underlying premise, and that's why they would never report on the impact of U.S. sanctions, which were so devastating. I guess my main question, though, is is like where I'm just like observing, and, and you know, I, I I realize this is anecdotal to my own experience, but I'm observing so much commerciality and and just grift, you know, from you know, a lot of it is from the Trump derangement syndrome things uh-huh. like that whatever i guess i'm wondering like where does that like substantively fit into american foreign policy and like like the american public's view and like is is there a well is there the, a through okay. line of the the trump grip the the incessant the incessant the incessant focus on trump helps legitimate everything that came before him so if you recall, for example, when Trump was embracing Saudi Arabia, you would have pundits on MSNBC saying what a horrible thing this is. And we don't support autocrats and completely erasing decades of U.S. policy. And the aim of that was to basically pretend as if Trump is the problem, that once we got rid of Trump, right. we'll go back to normal. And normal means pursuing the same policies, but just doing it in a less 
embarrassing way because Trump was an embarrassment. So I think that's what this Trump focus fits into is it sustains this myth. Do you see a connection between... I just feel like there is so much grift that that has been substantiated or, or, or like brought into, you know, the, the brought into commerce from that. And I guess I'm wondering about the relation between that, that, that sort of commerce and like actual, you know, American foreign policy. And, and, and okay. Well, look, I, uh, I guess I've answered you the best I can, and maybe I'm not getting everything sure, you're saying, sure, but, sure, I, sure, sure. but I appreciate the call, and uh, sure, I have to you, move thank on. You. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Okay, Matt. And Matt, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you press to unmute yourself. Okay, and if not, we'll move on to Sean. Okay, there you go. And Sean, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll keep it moving to Terrence. Okay. And Terrence, same thing. There's a microphone to unmute yourself. Unless we're facing a glitch in the app right now, it's either that or people are just not finding the microphone button. I'll keep it moving until we find someone who does. Okay. Eric, you're next. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I guess I had a quick question uh, in regards to the malleability of our presidents and the forwarding of foreign policy based on whether the president would go along with uh, our plans and the from the military industrial complex. Do you think that it's shifted over time um, from president to president or it's kind of stayed the same uh, based on uh, the underlying uh, permanent state that it relies on. Sorry, I missed the middle of your question. It cut out for me. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. I guess the question is mostly, do you feel, feel like uh, the malleability of our presidents uh, play a role in our foreign policy and, oh, right. yeah. and its ability to be, uh, uh, you know, thwarted by our presidents and or helped right. by our presidents? Right. Well, look, uh, you could argue that maybe Trump was malleable. He didn't know what he was doing. He was, uh, for example, talking about pulling out of Syria, and then he got bullied into staying. And uh, he was talking about disengaging from Syria and no longer supporting sectarian death squads, and he twice got convinced to bomb Syria based on chemical weapons allegations that I think we can say by now were frauds, were staged. And uh, so, yeah, Trump certainly was malleable. Um, and when he was accused of being a Russian puppet, that helped convince him to flood Ukraine with more weapons to try to prove how tough he was on Russia. So he's an example, I think, of malleability. But overall, I, do I think Biden's malleable? I mean, he's his whole life has been a hawk. So I don't think he's really being yeah. pushed into something. I think this is what he believes. He was very involved in Ukraine in 2014 and afterwards. He essentially was running Ukraine after the coup. And uh, so... I don't see much malleability there. I think this is just what they all do to be accepted. Obama, like, was Obama personally a neocon? Probably not. But I also don't think Obama has any real convictions. So he just wanted to do whatever could get him liked and could get him approval in Washington. I think that's what, above all, these people crave. 
I feel like the the last thing I'll add is I think that there's a the, the there's a, a a desire to maintain the specter that the president has control over what what our foreign policy is, and and I I believe they the presidents do to a certain extent, but I also believe that they don't that it there is no change between the presidents from one from one yeah. administration to the next. If you look at Obama, is there any evidence that Obama really wanted to go into Libya and do regime change or do regime change in Syria? No. According to all the available evidence, that was enthusiastically pursued by everybody below him, and he wasn't strong enough to push back. Hillary Clinton, Samantha Power really wanted Libya. Uh, Antony Blinken really wanted Libya and Syria too. They, you know, this, you know, and I just think in that context, they don't have the integrity and the strength to go against their own people. And uh, certainly now the same people are back under Biden, Jake Sullivan, Blinken, Samantha Power. And uh, I do think that these people have a lot of influence. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not just set by one one person. Thank you very much for taking my call. Thanks for the call. Okay. Q, and actually Q, you will be our last caller. So hello. Hey, what's up? Oh, wow. I did not think I was even going to make it. You made it. You made it. Okay. I I couldn't hang up on you. Thank you. That's so sweet. Um, no, what I was going to say was that uh, uh, I, I guess, like looking past um, this war, there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to mention. Like, given that the uh, the the topic of the show is about you know the U.S. sacrificing the climate uh, to pursue this war, that's it has no other gambits right now, right? Like, if if you've been paying attention to, and I, I mean, I know you pay attention to a lot, but I mean, like in general, you, know, you as in the audience are paying attention to what's happening with central banks right now. It's gotten to the point where like, there's a, a bunch of venture capital pullback, you know, uh, banks are hiking their key interest rates by like unfathomable amounts. The U S raised theirs. Uh, what is like by 75 basis points earlier this month. Um, Canada just raised its key interest rate by a hundred basis points. So a whole percent, which I don't, I can't recall. It's probably been done in my lifetime, but I can't recall when, uh, probably not since like the early 1980s. Um, and uh, central banks all around the world are retrenching on, uh, you know, cheap credit and low interest. And, <clears throat> you know, the other the, the news reports is that, you know, banks are trying to fight inflation. I mean, there is that. But it's also that uh, there's to some there's sort of two things happening. One is that in order to continue with this idea that uh, there's a crisis of inflation being driven by, you know, the escalating conflicts, global supply chain disruptions, etc. It's actually a really good time to start knocking off a lot of mid and low tier producers in just about every mm. market, right? So mm. uh, even, you know, there, there, are, there are many companies that, uh, you know, you would see attracting uh, millions or perhaps even billions of dollars in venture capital investments or at least expecting to, that simply aren't getting it because they were anticipating that credit interest rates were going to rise in the first place. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you saw that uh, Facebook is actually going to be engaging in mass layoffs now. Uh, they were talking about uh, idle staff, for example, you know, staff that aren't actually doing a heck of a lot. Um, that's a bit of a, uh, I don't know, that, that I, I cannot... Hugh, you unfortunately that cut out a bit there. Doing. Now, you might be looking at work from home and these are the benefits you get and so on and so on. That's corporate. That is too bad that Q is lagging because I really wanted to hear what he was saying. That are, yeah. yeah, Q, okay. unfortunately. Can you all hear me? Hello? Yeah, unfortunately, you're lagging um, 
the uh, the reception is cutting out, there? so hello, we're missing hello? large. Hi, yeah, we're, we're missing large parts oh, of what you're saying, saying. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'm sorry, I'm look, just moving to a better spot. Can you hear me better? Uh, yeah, it's it's okay now. Okay, no, I was just saying that uh, you know Facebook is engaging in in mass layoffs, and you know a lot like so. There's a lot of excuses being proffered as to why things are the way they are. That uh, inflation is going high, but inflation doesn't just uh, consider the price of inputs; it also captures corporate gouging. So mm. when you hear inflation, you're thinking, well, uh, the price of inputs is going up, oil and gas is more expensive, the cost of transportation of goods is more expensive, so on and so on. I mean, yes, to an extent, but uh, the majority of inflationary costs, especially for consumer staples, is actually coming from price gouging. So it's not just the United States that's sacrificing uh, the climate for this war. It's the United States that's sacrificing people's ability to make a living to give the impression that we are at the precipice of some disaster that doesn't actually exist yet. Now, the issue is not, is not this year. I think what's happening is that they're, they're priming us for what the next few years are going to look like. So what is actually happening is that, for example, the cost of feed for farmers, you know, uh, for your, let's say like a uh, chicken farmer or uh, a cattle farmer for like for slaughterhouse cattle, uh, for, uh, for sheep, etc., the cost of grain feed has gone up like 300% in the last six months. So we're not going to see these, these prices hit us until probably five or six months down the road when the animals that are being born now are being prepared for slaughter or the ones that are growing up now are ready for slaughter. So six months to a year, like you can expect to see things like, uh, you know, like for a six pack of boneless skinless chicken breast, you know, you're paying into like the twenties and $30 perhaps even, um, so what I'm trying to say is that like, it's not just the environment, it's, it's everything else. And what's happening right now is not the actual disaster. Yeah. It's, I, I really am getting the impression we're being primed for something worse. It's about to happen in terms of price shocks. Well, and that makes sense too, when it comes to energy, which we'll need more of in the winter time. And, um, there's already talk about rationing that, which is just, you know, for Oh, people. it's absolutely ridiculous. Like yeah. Germany, Germany is at 40%. They're running at 40% uh, capacity right now. Uh, and the only reason that Germany is, is operating at those levels is because of the, uh, the sanctions on Russia. Like, I'm not sure if you heard, for example, that Canada had to, not Canada, sorry, Siemens, which has a, a repair facility in Montreal, uh, sent a couple of Nord Stream 1 turbines over to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Ukraine was really upset with Canada for whatever reason, but Canada did not do business with Russia. It was... Siemens that had a contract to repair these turbines long before this con- conflict even happened. Yeah, but uh, it's 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 not as if the U.S. is simply orchestrating all of this. I think, like to a great extent, Zelensky understands the amount of suffering that uh, the EU is going through right now. That is committing economic suicide, and to him, it's okay uh, as long as he comes out of this looking like a hero, uh, and as long as nobody is pressuring Ukraine to go to the bargaining table. So if Germans are operating on 40% capacity or perhaps even lower, if you're looking at rolling brownouts, et cetera, doesn't really matter as long as they get what they want. And at this point, it's just like, I think the reason that you're not seeing it as much in the news anymore is because if you actually heard what people's opinions are about this conflict and what's actually doing to the rest of the world, I think most people are getting fed up. And that's why there's not any discussion mm-hmm. happening in the news. Cause even the reasonable pundits are starting to say, okay, it's time for this shit to be over. Yep. Yep. Uh, listen, Q, thanks so much. That's uh, yeah, a, a lot of really 
helpful insight that on stuff that I hadn't really th even thought about. So thank you. And I, I'm sure everyone here really appreciates it too. So thank you for calling to share that with us. And yeah, Zelensky, I think will make out just fine in the end. He'll be fine. He'll be rewarded for his services, but it's everybody else who has to suffer. And that just makes this um, all the more infuriating. I'm very sorry to people who I didn't get to today. Uh, we'll get to you next time. And I really appreciate everybody who came by to listen and to call in. I'll be back here Monday morning with Katie Helper at 11 a.m. Eastern time if you're around then. And otherwise, have a great rest of your evening. Bye, everybody.